You are now listening to Zakaic Podcast, proclaiming Jesus as Savior, Healer, Sanctifier, and Coming King. A blessed morning to everyone. Shall we open our Bibles in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. I will read from the New American Standard Bible 1995 edition. The word of the Lord says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and thus you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. 
The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. May the good Lord bless the reading of his word. There was one time that I asked some children with a question, what is the most anticipated month for you within the year? Without any hesitation, the child responded to me saying, December. And I asked further, why? The child gave me two reasons. A very intelligent little guy. I asked him why. He said, two reasons. Almost half of the months, I don't have class. I don't have to go to school, which is very correct. The second reason is that I receive a lot of gifts during Christmas. And I think not only for children, even for adults. I once asked also someone, a lady, what is your most anticipated month within the year? It's always December. So when January comes, still many people all over the world, especially Filipinos who celebrate Christmas for a very long time, we look forward to December because we want it to happen. It is so precious, it really creates a different atmosphere whenever December comes already. Other than the Christmas carols we hear, the Christmas decors we see, the lights that are lighted, all of these things can create something different with the environment where we live in. We anticipate for Christmas, we look forward to it. Now in those days, from the text that we read, Moses, I believe, also was looking forward to Christmas. Though he did not know that it's going to be called Christmas, but he was looking forward to that event when Jesus would come. He didn't know his name as Jesus yet, but he knew already that God is going to send someone to become a ray of hope for this dark world in that dark moment where they were in. What was happening back then was this. Let me tell you the story. If you look at the background of the book of Genesis, this was written not in one sitting only. The book of Genesis is composed of many, many chapters, and each chapter was written at a certain period. The first three chapters of Genesis in particular was written when they were crossing the vast desert from Egypt to Israel. Remember, I told you before, after they crossed the Red Sea, they were there already facing the vast desert. I mentioned to you last month we were there. We traveled from Bethlehem going to the last city of Israel at the south. Before you cross the border toward Egypt, you will end up with that city called Eilat. It's a very progressive city. But you cross the border, you will come to Taba. When we traveled from Bethlehem to Eilat, it took us around seven hours. And in that travel by bus, all you would see around you were vast deserts made of rocks, dry ground, and sand. You can see the sky kissing the sand. Those are the scenarios you would see. On in the other side of it, a portion of your travel, you would see the Dead Sea. Now, we slept one night in Taba after traveling for seven hours. And then we traveled again from our hotel going to the Sinai Peninsula, to Mount Sinai in particular. It took us four hours, seeing again a vast desert. 
So for around 9 to 11 hours of riding a bus with the desert surrounding us, how much more if you were walking? So if, if you would imagine the, the difficulty of the Israelites as they crossed this desert for several weeks, months, and years, this time, most probably they settled in the Sinai Peninsula. After work, walking for a long time, they settled first in Sinai Peninsula. They stayed there for a long moment. When you are traversing a desert, one of the greatest things that you would worry about is, where shall I get food? Travel in a vast desert wouldn't be a problem if it would, would only take a day. You can prepare your baon all you want, and then eat that baon that you have gradually until you arrive to the other side. But if you travel for months, you would have to think now the question, where shall I get food when my baon runs out? Where shall I get food? The next concern is, where shall I get water? So the Israelites were thinking about this matter when God inspired Moses to write the first chapter of Genesis. What will you find in the first chapter of Genesis? You would see there the creation, the creation account. When God, through His words, He created the light, He said, let there be light, and light came to be. When God, through His words, created the, not only the sky, but even the land and the vegetations and the animals and the waters and everything in the waters, just by the words of God. So Moses penned this down as he was inspired by God. And the purpose for that writing was to encourage the Israelites to let them be reminded about the reality that even if they were crossing the vast desert, even if their baons from Egypt already ran out, this God who called them from that slavery has the capacity to provide for them in the midst of the desert. He can bring them food. He can create water so that they will be well provided in that journey. If you are one of the Israelites, you would feel comforted with Genesis 1 while facing the desert. And that is why God let Moses write this down to remind them about the kind of God that they worship, that they followed. Now you proceed to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is an elaboration of God creating man. Don't get confused. You look at the first chapter of Genesis, verses 26 to 27, you would see there a mention already of God creating man. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so he created them, man and woman, he created them. That's what you would see in chapter 1, verse 26. However, when you continue reading and you arrive chapter 2 of Genesis, there is a creation account again. Is there, are there two creations? No, there was only one creation account. The mention of the creation of man in chapter 1 was a general statement of it. But you go to chapter 2, it was an elaboration of what God stated already in the first chapter. Okay? So that don't get confused about the accounts in the first two chapters of Genesis. However, when you look at this creation account, immediately you would take note of God's design of man. He said, let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, 
And along that statement, there is a commissioning of the human beings to rule over, to rule over, and to take dominion of the earth and the rest of the creations that God made. In other words, God placed the responsibility to human beings to be caretakers of what He created. Because those things that God created in the first chapter, the author repeatedly mentioned that it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Because they came to be the way God wanted them to be. So these good creations of God will be cared for by someone who was made according to his image. But the idea of ruling and dominion in the context of the first chapters of Genesis. The other day I was with the Department of Budget and Management and I shared to them some concepts of the design of God from the first chapter of Genesis. And I told them that when God told man to rule over the world, to take dominion of the rest of the creations he made, in the mind of God, he was actually having a boundary of the exercise of authority. What was that boundary? When God said, rule over, you must, human being must rule over within the boundary of his will, of his purpose for the rest of his creation. God designed the authority or designated the authority to men like vice regents. If you are a vice regent, you were vested with an authority, but that authority that you have is not absolute because you are accountable to someone who has an, a higher authority than you have. I'll repeat. A vice regent is someone vested with an authority, but his authority is not absolute because he must exercise his responsibility and res authority with the consciousness that there is someone who has the higher authority and he is answerable to that person who has a higher authority than him. That was God's intention for man to, to, to rule over, to take dominion while being conscious of God as the higher authority. Thus, he must rule within the boundary of God's will and God's purpose for the rest of the creation. Now, the problem came in if you look at chapter 3. What happened in chapter 3 in the text that we read is that in the creation that God made, there was the serpent. And among all of them, the serpent was the most or the, the crafty one that was mentioned here in the first verse of chapter 3. He is crafty. And then when you say crafty, he has the capacity to lure someone, to tempt someone, and lead that someone into its destruction. And that's exactly what the serpent did here. And how he did it is very interesting because he started conversing with Eve using the very words of God but twisted it a little. It's seemingly the same, but actually he entirely changed the statement. Listen to what the serpent said to him. So listen very carefully in their conversation. If you look at Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 to 17, God commanded Adam with these words. The Lord God commanded the man saying, listen very carefully to the words of God to Adam. From any tree of the garden... 
you may eat freely. Okay? Take note of the words of God. From any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. Listen to what the serpent said to the woman in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1b. At the end part of it, you shall not eat from any tree. So God said, you may eat from any tree of the garden freely. But there is an exception. The exception is that do not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, the tree in which the fruit of the tree, I mean, would give you the knowledge about good and evil. That's the prohibition that is given in the second chapter. So the first line was, you may eat freely from any tree in the garden. And then the serpent came to Eve and said, well, God said, you may not eat from any of the tree. The work of Satan is very effective even until today. What does he do is that he presents a counterfeit. Something that is seemingly true but is not. He comes to you not like a lion or a monster. He comes to the people of God, even to the unbelievers, like an angel. He presents something that is seemingly so good for you without you knowing that it's going to lead to your destruction. It's a deceit, a counterfeit that is very effective even until today. That's why there is no temptation that may come to your life in a form of a monster. A temptation would always come in a beautiful way. Something that would lure you, will get your attention, will attract you, and make you feel that it's good for you without you knowing that it's going to lead you to your demise. Now, what happened here is that the woman was still in her senses. So she corrected what the serpent told him. The serpent said, you, God said you may not eat from any of the tree in the garden. But the woman, while she was still in her senses, said, No, what God told me is that I can eat from any of the tree in the garden, except for that one in the middle that will give me the knowledge about good and evil, because less, if I eat that, I will die. And then the next part of the conversation is also very much interesting because the serpent pushed further his idea. The twisting of the words of God came in the next part of the conversation. Look at verse 4b. The serpent, the woman said, because if I eat or touch it, I will die. The serpent said, you surely will not die. You surely will not die, he said. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Who wouldn't like that? By the time you eat the fruit, you surely will not die. He's making God a liar, actually. You surely will not die. But God is trying to prohibit you from eating such fruit because if you do, then you will become like Him. And you will now know what is good and what is bad. Now listen very carefully on this matter. When God designated man to be the caretaker of his creation, I mentioned to you earlier that it was in the form, in the concept of a vice regent, that they will listen to the Lord and they will follow the instructions of God, that they will now implement what God has made as a decision. 
But what the serpent is trying to propose here to Adam and Eve was this. Actually, you don't have to wait for God to decide for you. Because you can elevate yourself to His level. And when you are on that same level with God, you can make your own decisions. Because you know already what is good or bad, you can make your own decisions. That is why in parenting, when you talk with children, with toddlers, there are times that the toddlers would insist, this is what I want to do. And the parents would say, no, you have to follow us because we know better than you. There are things that you cannot see that we know and perceive already because we experienced that from the past already. So you follow what we say. And yet when they are adults, you cannot tell that to them anymore because they are in their own capacity to make decisions. So the intention of God for Adam and Eve, God was like treating, treating them as children that would obey the parents. The problem was that the serpent was trying to make them think that they, are on the, they can be on the same level of God and that they can make their decisions away from God. Listen very carefully. It was in the Garden of Eden that it was in the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve tried to stay away now from the decisions of God. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus tried to bring back the will of man to the will of God. Adam and Eve was deceived by the serpent because you can be like God and you can make decisions for yourselves. And yet Jesus, when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, but your will. The design of God was really like that because we were created to be vice regents, to be caretaker within the boundary of God's will and purpose. But the enemy distorted it. He destroyed it totally. And so Eve was deceived. She looked at the fruit. It looks so enticing. And by the way, the Bible doesn't say that it's an apple, okay? There is no mention of the kind of fruit, the thing that was eaten by Adam and Eve. So if someone would tell you they ate an apple, it's not in the Bible. We just do not know what kind of fruit it was. The only thing we know about it is that it gives knowledge between good and evil. Maybe it was said to be an apple because the apple is enticing as well. But the Bible doesn't say so. So let's stick with that information that we have. Now Eve ate the fruit and she shared it to her husband and the husband who's supposed to be the leader ate it as well. He did not only allow his wife to succumb to the temptation, he was also tempted. Men, listen very carefully. The instruction was given directly to Adam. The instruction was given directly to Adam. No wonder when they were walk, when God was walking in the garden and they were hiding, who was the person that God confronted first? It was Adam. It's the male leadership. One of the things that I have seen here in the downfall of human beings was the lack of male leadership in the context of marriage. 
I can see many married people here. If man will not take that responsibility, you are putting your family in a great danger. God has entrusted the leadership to you. You must lead your family in the ways and will and purpose of God. Now, what happened here next is that Adam and Eve ate it already. And when God walked in the garden, He looked for them, though God knew where they were, because He was all-knowing. He knew where they were. And then He looked for them, and Adam and Eve said, We're hiding because we're naked. And then God said, Who said that you were naked? Did you eat the prohibited fruit? And they did. And they started playing the blame game. It was the woman. And the woman said, no, it was the serpent who tempted me. And all of them got the consequence for their action. Because even if God gave them the prerogative of choice, every human being was not given the capacity to determine the outcome of your choices. I mean the consequence of your choices. Listen very carefully. While man was created as a free person who has the capacity to think which is right or wrong and the ability to make decisions for himself, we do not have the power to determine the consequence of our actions and decisions. Every decision we make has a, has a consequence, particular consequence that it has and it is somehow like predetermined already. So you must accept, we must all accept that. And that's why we must be very careful of every choice that we make. The choice they made, they disobeyed God. And what happened next is so interesting that God only cursed the serpent and the ground, never Adam and Eve. And that gives us an idea that from the very beginning, right at that moment of the downfall of human beings, there was already a redemptive thought from the very minds of, G of God Himself. Why did I say that? First is that idea that I have presented to you earlier. The curse was never given to men and to Adam and to Eve. It was only pronounced toward the serpent and the ground. It gives us a sense of understanding that curse is not granted to men so that God will be able to redeem them in a way that He will restore what He designed at the very beginning. There is a redemptive idea already from the mind of the offended God. Second, if you look at the text, you would see there that God guarded the tree of life. Maybe you missed this. In the first chapters of Genesis, there were two trees mentioned in the, in the middle of the garden. The tree that will give the knowledge about good and evil and the tree of life that will make a mortal immortal. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree that would give them the knowledge of good and evil, God guarded the tree of life. For what reason? Because once they eat the fruit of that tree as well, the possibility in my own understanding is that they will now become immortal and their condition of fallenness will remain forever. God guarded the tree so that man will not eat it and will remain mortal and that through that kind of condition, he will be able to address the issue and will redeem mankind again. Move forward. 
Other than that is that in the judgment pronounced to the serpent, there is a prophecy. Look at Genesis chapter 3.15. Let's read the text. Genesis 3.15. It says there, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between you, your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you in the, on, the, on your head, and you shall, be bruised, you shall bruise him on the hill. Now take note. The pronoun use in the translation is in capital he. He shall bruise you on your head. Because among the evangelical circles and theologians, Genesis 3.15 is believed to be the proto-evangelium. It means to say it was the first time of an anticipation for the gospel to come. It was the first time that it was announced that in the days to come, there is going to be someone who will come and that person will be victorious over Satan. The first time in the entire Bible. So Genesis 3.15 is accepted to be the first announcement of the gospel among the evangelicals. Imagine while God was pronouncing the consequence for the mistake and disobedience of men, there is along with it a message of redemption, a message of hope. And then lastly, when you look at the last verse of the text we read in verse 21, Adam and Eve clothed themselves with fig leaves because they were ashamed. They were no longer innocent. They knew that they were boreless. They were naked. So they, they needed fig leaves to wear. And yet God changed it with an animal skin. The animal skin must be an object that was taken from a living one. It was the very first time that the concept of an animal sacrifice was introduced in the scriptures. The animal was slaughtered, I believe, and the skin was taken so that the same, the, the ashamed man and the shameful man must be clothed by it. So in all of these details that I have presented to you, it gives us an idea that right at the very downfall account of human beings, God already thought of redeeming His creation. I like how Pastor Emmanuel Young encapsulated everything with a line that says, In the mindless downfall of Adam and Eve, there was the mindful redemption from God. I'll repeat the line. In the mindless downfall of Adam and Eve, there was the mindful redemption of the ever-living, redeeming God. Imagine that. There is always a redemption in the mind of God. Yes, Christmas during the time when Moses wrote this, he doesn't know that it's going to be called Christmas. But in that early centuries of what is this belief in God, they already found a ray of hope that in the midst of this dark scenario that he penned down in the first chapters of Genesis that men disobeyed God. It was dark indeed because seemingly human beings were hopeless. But through Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, Moses found a hope, a ray of hope that's coming in the coming years, in the coming years. We may be seemingly defeated because we were tempted. We disobeyed God. We failed. But in the coming years, there is someone who's going to come. And he is a victor over Satan. 
And that person is no other than Jesus himself. Jesus is a great redeemer. In the eyes of Moses, one day, something that we call now Christmas, the darling of heaven would come and will live, not only live, but die so that the disobedience that happened in the Garden of Eden will finally be paid forever. Hallelujah. This reminds me of a story. One day, in an English state, there was a gathering of couples, a fellowship between, among couples. They all gathered in the backyard of one of their friends, and they were happily celebrating the day. The celebration was interrupted by a cry of a little boy who was drowning in the middle of a huge pool. Everyone was disturbed. Everyone was shouting for help. The gardener heard the cry of the boy. And without any hesitation, he ran to the pool, dove to it, and then swam and then saved that little boy. Oh, by the way, the name of the boy is Winston Churchill. The boy was safe, and then the, the parents now talked to the gardener and told him, Mister, you have done so much to save our son. What is it that you want us to do for you? And the gardener hesitated, but he said, I have a son. And I want him to become a medical doctor, but I don't have the resources to send him to school. The Churchill said, consider it done and sponsored. We will take care of his education until he finishes everything. Years have passed. Winston Churchill became an adult, not only an adult, but became the prime minister of England. But while he was reigning one day, he experienced a severe pneumonia that almost took his life. They tried to look for the best doctor in the entire country. They found the best, Dr. Alexander Fleming, who discovered penicillin. Dr. Alexander Fleming took care of Winston Churchill. He recovered from the severe pneumonia. And Winston Churchill said, It is very rare that a man will owe someone twice in that the same person. Because Dr. Alexander Fleming was the son of the gardener who saved Churchill in the pool. He said, it's very rare that a man would owe someone, but that a man would owe twice the same person in saving his life. But you know what? How many times did Jesus save us? We sin over and over. But the blood he offered in the cross saves us all the time. Both our sins in the past 
and the sins that we may commit in the future. Jesus paid it all already. So if you count every sin we have committed, that's the number of salvation He has given to you and to me. Amazing God. If Churchill was so grateful to the Flemings, we must be all grateful to Jesus who saved us not only from death physical on earth, but He saved us from the eternal damnation. And we are all now called His own children because Jesus offered that salvation. And that is the kind of God that you and I worship today. That even from the very beginning, when the downfall account was written, there was a mind, mindless downfall of men. God already thought mindfully of redeeming mankind, the ones whom He entrusted the rest of His creation. I am praying that with this we will all be grateful with what God has done for you and for me. Because with Him, with Jesus, you are forever secured in the hand of, the, of Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind. You are saved. We are all saved, all because of Him. We must be grateful for what He's done. Today, we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Jesus offered His body. It was torn Bruises were there. The pain was experienced. His blood flowed out of it just to save you and me. The distortion, the destruction that Satan started in the Garden of Eden, Jesus redeemed it when he was there hanging on the cross at Calvary. And it is our prayer that we will have a better appreciation of what Christ has done for all of us. You just heard the message from Zumbuanga City Alliance Evangelical Church. We hope that it will help you in your journey with the Lord Jesus Christ. For more updates, you can follow us in our social media platforms in Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram at Zekayak Ministries. See you there!